It is December 15th, and welcome to episode 164 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that usually gets you quickly up to speed three times a week on the national security and foreign policy debates shaking up America. However, today is a little different as our annual special holiday episode. We're in person, we have snacks, and we have drinks, and we're going to be having fun reflecting on the most pressing stories from the last year. And we'll also look a little bit into the future. So let's start off by having our crew, which is a little bigger today, introduce themselves. Matthew Hyman, Senior Fellow at NSI. Jamil Jaffer, Founder and Executive Director at NSI. Morgan Vigno, Vice President of Government Affairs at the Jewish Institute for National Security of America and NSI Fellow. Not Jewish, Shiksa at Jitsa. <laughs> Martha Miller, Fellow at NSI. Uh, hi, I'm Matthew Ferraro. I'm a senior fellow at NSI, a lawyer and a former intel officer. Andy Kaiser, I'm at a firm called Navigators Global. Uh, I'm an NSI, I think, senior I think fellow. So um, and I'm wearing a Clark Griswold shirt because next yes. to Die Hard, everybody knows it's the greatest Christmas movie there is. And I'm Jess Jones. Um, and some of us are dressed up in the office, so you might hear a little bit more about our outfits as we go on. So we're going to kick it off with a little bit of an icebreaker called Hit or Miss. Uh, we're going to go around the table, and everyone is going to share foreign policy or national security hit or miss, and from whose perspective. For example, Iranian protests would be a hit from the perspective of the U.S. government and global uh, global human rights advocates. And a miss could be, from the U.K.'s perspective, the passing of beloved Queen Elizabeth or the Queen Mum. Um, so there's no rule that you can't repeat what anyone said, but if they did, try to think on the spot. So, Matthew, you're going to kick us off. Thanks. My hit is the recent announcement of the development of a new um, uh, fighter aircraft between Japan, Italy, and the UK. And in particular, not so much on the merits of the fact that they're going to try and develop an aircraft, but the fact that Japan is very much looking at how to strengthen its military and thinking about longer-term regional and global threats. And the more that Japan's in the game, the better off we all are. Miss. My miss is President Biden fist bumping MBS and rolling complete snake eyes on the whole merits of the mission. Uh, he, he went there hat in hand. He left hat in hand with an empty hat and he made it. It just looked dumb. All right. My hit is, um, man, this has been a tough year for hits. <laughs> I'm going to start with my miss. Uh, my miss is the Russians' complete failure to understand how terrible their military was and how, how well the Europe, Ukrainians were going to uh, defend their nation. Um, and my hit is the Biden administration failing to admit that American, I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> that sounds like a terrible start of a hit. We'll come back to you, Janiel. We'll come back, we'll come back to the wizard hat. We'll come back to you, Morgan. So my hit for 2022 is that BB is back. Um, fifth election, three years. That's a hit? <laughs> yes. Israel has a new government, finally. <laughs> Fifth election, three years, BB's back. Miss is uh, Trump's meeting with Nick Fuentes and Kanye. Yeah, um, yeah blatant anti-Semites, and uh, Trump met with them. So, yeah. My hit is Finland and Sweden pursuing NATO membership. Oh, that's good. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously a, a positive for the United States, uh, from my perspective. Uh, miss, Biden raising the prospect of a nuclear Armageddon at a political fundraiser. <laughs> Uh, hi, this is Ferraro again. So my hit is the emergence of a pro-democracy majority 
in the United States in the 2022 midterm elections. I think this is an important foreign policy achievement. I realize that's the question because it strengthens U.S. democracy, which helps uh, around liberal internationalism around the world. It uh, gives us a puts in a much better position to beat back authoritarians both at home and abroad. And honestly, it just makes me feel a lot better coming uh, into 2023. Uh, my miss, I know we mentioned Putin, uh, Jamil did sort of, I think it, it, it bears repeating just because if I thought of somebody who uh, revealed his country to be more of a Potemkin village, uh, then I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't think of anyone else who revealed his country and his power to be more of a Potemkin village than Vladimir Putin this year, where his army is literally hollowed out his power is evanescent, and uh, I just think uh, it's probably the most amazing fall from grace that I can think of from a world leader in uh, recent memory. Good ones. Uh, let's see. My hit is this, uh, you know, at times chaotic, at times seamless um, fits and starts effort globally to reshore, nearshore key com technological components like semiconductors. And it's not just in the United States where we've had huge multi-billion dollar announcements, the largest uh, foreign direct investment in United States history, where TSMC is building a huge fab in Arizona. But uh, actually just this week, in India announced uh, break they're breaking ground on a big fab. So the global effort to diversify key components away from China um, and, and in a post-COVID environment where we all got a firsthand glimpse as to what a bad idea that was. Uh, that's my hit. Miss is the global response to North Korea. Uh, so something we haven't, we don't talk about much isn't on the front pages, but remember the days when uh, a launch from Kim Jong-un generated front page news. He's back full bore testing uh, at, at, a, as, at a frequent pace as he has uh, in recent years. And uh, a lot going on in the world. There's there's a lot of uh, failure to go around, but certainly a, a U.S.-led coalition to sort of contain or, or, or move that relationship along has had a dismal failure. Before I let Jamil do his final hit, I will say um, miss uh, Elon Musk buying Twitter. I've now just joined Twitter, and I'm tired of all of the doomsday predictions coming up on my Twitter from all of the pundits. And then a hit somewhat related to Ferraro's is making it through the midterms without too many claims of voter fraud or stolen elections and just surviving November. I literally just got a, a, a fundraising test from Carrie Lake telling me that her team has filed the biggest, most important, uh, you know, election fraud case in history. So Carrie Lake disagrees with you, Jess, on voter fraud in the elections. Can I two finger you, Jess? Just say I'm a Twitter user. Um, just check out those mute functions. <laughs> I mute Elon Musk and all mentions of him, and my experience is so much better. A lot of people are really excited that Elon owns Twitter. So I'll just note that. I'm not saying whether I have that view or not. Is that your a lot of people. No, my hit, my hit is the power of protest. In at least two hugely unfree nations around the world, Iran and China, protesters have apparently had success. In Iran, the morality police allegedly have been abolished. In China, the zero COVID policy out the door, that may lead to a lot more dead Chinese people and supply chain problems around the globe, but their zero COVID craziness um, is gone. And so wins for protesters. Be warned, Vladimir Putin, the power protest is there. Wait till people find out what's really going on in Ukraine. It might be coming to your doorstep. 
Jamil's literally a walking talking point. Like, I just felt like we were on MSNBC, by the way. Jackery. Let's not make that a 2023 phrase. Okay, so our next little game is we call it Fault Lines Final Exam. Um, as you guys know, we're here at the law school, so we can't help but test everybody. May or, be, may or may not have wrong, right or wrong answers. Okay, so how does final exam work? We're going to go around the table, and each guest will take a turn asking a question and presenting multiple choice answers, and the rest of the group is going to vote for their answer, and we're going to walk through each option. So I'm going to go first just to lead the way to give a little sense of the game. So my question is, what is the first GOP-led House investigation going to be over? Jamil, don't answer too quickly. Is it A? Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden. Is it B, COVID coming from Hunter China? Biden. Is it C, the Afghanistan withdrawal? Hunter or is Biden. it D, over the southern border? Who votes? And this, and granted, first might be by minutes. I don't know how many investigations are going to launch or the timing. So let's just really, this is like instantaneous here. Who's going to vote A, Hunter Biden? Okay, so let's hear a little from Andy, Martha, and Jamil why you think that's going to be the first. Um, well, you have a very contentious House Speaker vote. And so... The one thing that unifies the Republican Party is a uh, concern about the president and his family's business dealings. And so that is, uh, as a unifying message of the party, certainly not the country, but the party, uh, could see that being first out of the gate. I would add to that, I agree with you on the unifying message to the party. Um, it is about censorship, um, the, the perce perception of censorship by big tech. Uh, which is something that unifies uh, most Republicans, not just the, the MAGA Trumpers. So, look, I mean, I think I think there's obviously a lot of obsession about the Hunter Biden uh, laptop and uh, what was on there and the claims that it was Russian disinformation. Uh, a concern that I had from from day one, I mean, it is very suspicious, regardless of what you think about whether the laptop's genuine or not, right? It seems clear that what was on there was genuine uh, at this point. But the question of how it ended up in Rudy Giuliani's hands in some weird little shop, right? I mean, there's a lot of questions about the Hunter Biden laptop, but... But, you know, the, the New York Post, uh, uh, you know, at least on the merits of, of, the, of what was on there, uh, appears to have been right. And I think there's a lot of anger amongst Republicans about the way that uh, the way that that issue was treated on on social media and the like. Um, and there are huge problems there. Right. Put aside what you think about the, the 15 intelligence officials, all that. It's a huge debate. Uh, but but the question about the suppression of the story, the alleged suppression of the story, I think is something that is, that is going to merit a lot of conversation, particularly in a post Elon Twitter world. Okay, so do we have any votes for B, COVID coming from China? Ooh, no one. I feel like that's like, been hot in the news. Like, like the, that it was manufactured. Who thinks it wasn't? Who, who, say, wait, Investigation who thinks? into, stop COVID arguing origins. with the multiple choice. COVID okay, so no is. votes. Thank you, Jamil. C, <clears throat> Afghanistan withdrawal. Matthew? Morrow. Um. Yeah, I, I would say this is hope over experience. Like, I hope that this is what they, <laughs> what they have to investigate because I think that there are a lot of germane questions um, about what we knew about the Afghan security forces and how quickly they collapsed, about whether we could have sequenced it better, for instance, holding Bagram while we evacuated, things like that. Um, so I just think that this is an area that where we actually could have some significant lessons learned. So in a, in Earth 2.0 or whatever, where, where Congress is functioning in a sensible manner, I think this is a place where they could do some really important investigative work. It's, it, interestingly, there is, of course, the Afghanistan War Commission, which was created by the NDAA uh, this past year. And so that will also be looking into 20 years of Afghan war efforts. But this is an area in a specific topic on which Congress could 
emphasize could uh, exercise some leadership and really bring some light to bear. Well, well, of course, the lesson learned should be don't make promises and then not keep them to thousands of people who help you in a, in a fight and then leave them behind to the enemy. Without Seems like a good lesson aspect. to be learned. One aspect of the potential investigation. Right. And that leaves D, southern border. Woo. Here. Right. So I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll qualify the, this response with saying that I think all four of these answers are all of four of these options are going to be investigated by various committees simultaneously. Right. I don't think it's an either or issue here. I think these top are the four of the top issues that Republicans are going to be looking at. I think with the southern border in particular, though, if you look at the midterms, this was the one this was the top issue that was on the forefront of every voter's mind. It was the one that pulled as like the most important issue. And so if you see, saw a lot of these um, the candidates' websites, Southern Border Illegal Immigration was top. They all had an opinion on it and they were all very outspoken on it. So I think Southern Border will continue to be an issue. It is bipartisan. Um, Biden has gotten flack from both sides of the aisle on this. And I think it's something that ultimately um, is it not only impacts um, red states, but, you know, blue states and purple states. So stay tuned. I think Southern border is going to be a bigger issue in 2023 than most people expect. All right. Okay. So going around the table, Morgan, you're up with your question. Awesome. So in 2023, the Iranian regime will a collapse B offer the Biden administration, a nuclear deal. It can't refuse C conduct a nuclear weapons test D a B C, or a combination, of, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or E, none of the above. Jamil, you have thoughts? Or do you want to start with A? I mean, look, I actually, I actually think I actually think we're likely to see B and C, which I don't realize is not an answer on the list, but I do think that um, the, they're going to continue to try to offer the Biden administration a deal they can't refuse because there's no deal the Biden administration can really refuse because they want one so badly, uh, they're rushing to one. And I do think that the, that the Iranian regime is, is, is angling towards the nuclear weapons test as the way to get the Biden administration to a deal. Um, and so I've, I worry about that. I'm less confident in C, I'll admit that, but I do worry about that. Okay, so clearly, sorry, Jess, I, I, I botched the, your process here. So who thinks the Iranian regime is going to collapse? No. Wow. Next year. <laughs> Do we hear my I mean, I would like us to push them over the line to collapse, but the, this administration doesn't believe in regime change, Zero. even though that's the right answer. Yeah. Regime change, right answer, wrong administration. Yeah. All right. B, offer the Biden administration a nuclear deal. It can't refuse. Keeping in mind that nuclear negotiations stopped last spring, or excuse me, last summer, and right now, yeah, right, <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Who knows yeah. what Rob Malley is going to pull out of his hat in 2023. But would love to see if um, uh, there is forward momentum on the Iranian nuclear deal, given that the protests are going to take place. So anyone think B? I think B. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I think it's exactly your point. It's depending on whether what happens with the Iranian protests, whether there's any bandwidth to seek negotiations or have, you know, have the energy to do that. Yeah. But putting that aside, I think, yeah, out of, out of the options, yeah. I mean, the Biden administration is looking for some kind of what would seem like a win or some movement. And one lesson in Ukraine, of course, is give up your nuclear program at your own peril. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the world has relearned that lesson. I suspect the Iranians noticed and um, I'm kind of with Jamil, some kind of BC combo. 
Yeah, I genuinely think that if um, the momentum on the protest dies down, um, this gives the administration really an opening to, to, to re restart nuclear negotiations. So. All right, C, conduct a nuclear weapons test. Look, I mean, I worry this is a real thing. I mean, the, the Iranians have increased their um, their enrichment levels well past the 20%. That's the, that's the bulk of the work it takes to get to uh, nuclear weapons capable material or, or physical, uh, you know, nuke to create nuclear fission. Um, the problem is, of course, that uh, you need three things to have a nuclear weapon set. You got to have the, fiss the fissile material, you got to have a delivery vehicle, right, that works, and you got to have. Um, uh, a, a warhead design, and the real question is: is which is the, which the Iranians not ha, don't have, or which they don't, not sure they have, and are they going to be able to pull it off um, in a way that works? And I do worry that they're getting ready and get close to that point. And so I think it's some combination of a nuclear they can't refuse, and if they don't get one, weapons test, or use a weapons test to leverage to a deal. Got it. So I think we went over D. Um, none of the above. E. Oh, hey. Uh, so my thoughts. The Matthews. Right. <laughs> oh, oh uh, I'll be brief so that you can hear the Matthews. Um, I, I think the regime is going to collapse, but I have no reason to think it's going to happen next year, not until the Ayatollah dies. And I, don't, I don't think he's going to die next year. Um, I really, Jamil and I argued about this on an earlier podcast. I really don't think that the, the Biden administration is, is like all in for a nuclear deal, especially now with the protests. I, I just don't see... Um, the energy there. Um, I'm not convinced that the Iranians would see the utility of a nuclear test. I, I don't think it would play out the way that some some do here. That it would lead then to a to a deal. Uh, if anything, I think it would help to further radicalize uh, the regime and see them even more as a uh, as an outlaw state. So yeah, I think it, we might just continue to muddle along. I also think the Iranians can't necessarily calibrate their response to the protests. I think they're going to continue to over. Um, overreact to the protests, which only leads to more protests, which only leads to further isolate the regime from the international community. And, and I think the regime is likely to do something naughty. I don't know if it's a nuclear test, but I think they're going to do something dastardly in the region, either to Israel, to the Kurds, to someone somewhere to distract from the domestic unrest they're facing right now. That's a classic you know, tyrannical regime move as you identify an enemy outside your borders to get everyone focused on that. I'm very worried about that, much the way you might say at some point Xi's going to invade Taiwan because of all the unrest in China. So I'm not sure if it's a nuclear test, but I think it's something dastardly uh, that we'll all shake our heads at. Um, and more than drones to Russia. Yes, more than drones to Russia. I think they will, they will kill a lot of Kurds. They've already They'll, done that. They've already attacked the Kurds. I think in a much more dramatic way, or I think they will do something awful to Israel or, you know, they will try and put their stamp that they're still in control of themselves mm -hmm. and they're asserting control across the region. Could be another attack on Saudi Aramco. Could be. That's well for 2023. Um, okay, next up, Matthew Ferraro. All right. If you could keep only one of the Biden administration's <clears throat> current trade policies, which one would you keep? A, the administration's continuation of Trump-era tariffs on Chinese goods. B, the Inflation Reduction Act's provisions that sub subsidize electric vehicle and battery production in the United States. C, the Chips and Science Act, which funnels tens of billions of dollars towards subsidizing the construction of domestic computer chip manufacturing plants. Or D, none of the above. They are all a disaster. We need to jettison Trump-style protectionism and embrace 
free trade. Okay, so where are our votes for A? And again, the question is, what can you keep? Is anybody in favor of Trump-era tariffs on Chinese goods? Okay, I see no hands. B, the Inflation Reduction Act's provisions to subsidize electric vehicle and battery production. Any hands for B? Uh, no hands. We've got no environmentalists yeah, here. Yeah. Sorry. C, the CHIPS Act funneling tens of billions of dollars. Okay, I see lots of hands. Let's go to Andy first. Um, so... The, the first, I can be convinced on why batteries are a strategic priority for the United States. Um, so I could get to B, but I, I, it's very clear to me that C is a critical component in everything from the iPhone in your pocket to the F-35 in the sky. Um, and again, when we had to rely on, on China for, for critical components in an emergency in COVID, uh, didn't go so great, um, and I think that's not a lesson we want to relearn. And something as important as, um, you know, a, a critical component in literally everything that has an on and off switch. So that's where I can get to industrial policy. Yes. Use that. You know, Andy uh, articulated it quite well, <laughs> um, but essentially, I think we learned, as as Andy just stated, in the pandemic that we really. Uh, have some critical needs that need to be produced in the United States and not depend on China. Any others for C? Uh, okay, D, none of the above. Okay, Morgan. I think you perfectly articulated it in your, in your initial response, but no free trade all the way. I want option E, which is all of the above, not including D, which is to say, the, I'm a big believer in free trade like Morgan is, but this is all about fair trade. This is about China's never played fair, so we should leave the tariffs in place on them. The iron production that, that, that allow critical minerals to be sourced here for American batteries and EV makes sense. And, of course, we should fund semiconductor production in the U.S. It was idiotic to let it go, go all overseas. So I actually like all three of these. I want option E, all of the above, and I'm a big free trader. He's wearing a Santa's hat, so he's like giving out the gifts to everyone. He's that's like, right, yeah, that's right. Good point. Congratulations to Jamil for completely redefining what a free trader is. Peter <laughs> <laughs> Navarro in the White House. Um, I've got some reservations about aspects of all three of these things, so it's hard for me to get excited about keeping any of them in toto. I do think there are certain things that we should be doing, and probably the one that's closest to the one that I think made the most sense is the Chips and Science Act, but um, I'm somewhere in between Jamil's definition of free trade and Morgan's definition of free trade. <laughs> oh, that's really bold. There you go. <laughs> I think that Martha and Andy covered what I would say with, uh, with vote C, so I don't have anything to add. But you're a Chips and Science Act. I'm person. a Chips and Science Act. All right. Yeah. Sorry, if my free trade differs from some of the other. <laughs> Qualified free trade. Yeah. Andy? Oh, next question. Yes, what uh, mine is, what global flashpoint in 2023 is, is more likely to elicit international intervention? Define intervention. <laughs> yeah, I just like these words. Yeah. Um, you can uh, take for, you know, take it for what you imagine it to be. Um, A, Russia, Ukraine, like some kind of mili outside military intervention. Uh, North Korea testing. China, Taiwan, some tension, skirmish, misunderstanding, Iran protests. Okay. Um, and we need an E, don't we? 
We need an E. You don't have to have an E. We need an E, none of the above. No, that's like an easy way out. No. You have to pick one. Because uh, it's going to okay. happen. We're not yeah, advocating for this. No one's on the record for advocating for US intervention in what they're going to pick. But All right. I'm going to think A, Ukraine, Russia, some type mm. of international intervention, perhaps over Crimea or something. Almost unanimous. I'll just be brief. I, I'll just say that I think that um, it's really in the the broad definition of these words. So, like, the oh, idea yeah. that we're going to deploy Patriot Middle but missile batteries probably with U.S. trainers raises the likelihood. I mean, of course, that is sort of intervention and raises the likelihood that they might get killed or wounded, which would, of course, raise the likelihood of greater U.S. intervention. So I don't think, like, the 3rd Infantry Division is going to deploy but I think something along those lines is at least possible. Yeah, it's good. Even though they should. Matter, for sure. The incident in Poland raises the stakes, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I, I think you said it quite well. Um, also, I don't think the others are likely uh, to uh, spark any intervention. So we are already intervening in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. That thing. Yeah. We, we are providing tens of billions of dollars in its bipartisan support for Russia and China, or excuse me, Russia and Ukraine um, in that conflict. Bottom line, um, I think that it will continue. Um, clearly, uh, Republicans in Congress have cited um, concerns with oversight issues of how that money is being used, particularly with direct budget support to the Ukrainian government. And I think they are perfectly valid to raise those concerns. Um, but when it really comes to uh, U.S. security assistance for Ukraine in their uh, fight against Russia, um, I I expect that to continue in 2023. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to expand, actually. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I, th- I actually think our security assistance is going to continue to expand too slowly to make a difference for the thousands of civilians dead in Ukraine um, and the and the and the tens of the millions of dollars we have to spend on rebuilding uh, their power capabilities, but no one thinks we're going to intervene in Taiwan. China doesn't think that. They're not worried about that. North Korea, what are we going to intervene and have them have them launch nuclear weapons? International intervention. It doesn't have to be the U.S. And the Biden. <laughs> well, we are the globe's leader. <laughs> and I'm voting, man. I'm voting against you guys. Even though we don't want to lead the world, um, we are the globe's leader. Um, and Iran protests. If the Biden administration was going to intervene, they would have done it already, and they haven't done it. It's embarrassing that we haven't. Uh, we should be much more involved there. Ukraine, Russia is the only place we seem to be wanting to get involved, and even then, it's it's herky jerky and and you know half hearted. Uh, but there it is. Hyman. Yeah, I I voted for Ukraine, Russia because it's actually happening right now, and there, these other three are talk. The Iran protests are obviously happening right now. But there's not been an intervening event, so to speak, in North Korea or China, Taiwan to date. And there could well not be something that happens during 2023. So I think when you knock through those options, it's Ukraine, Russia, for all the reasons that have been cited. Plus the fact it's just the right thing to do. Imagine that. Yes. Uh, so, A, we've already to the point of actually answer A, Ukraine, Russia. We are already there. Um, so I'm going to step outside the box. I'm going to go D, Iran protests. And I'm not saying it's going to be the U.S. I don't know what the scope of intervention looks like because we haven't defined it lawyerly, like Matthew pointed out, that we don't know what that means. But as Matthew pointed out, if there's some escalatory or some big action by Iran, just just some stamp across the region, or that might provoke a response. And I just, you know, the protests have been going on for months now. 
we we have no idea how that's going to end. Um, it might tamp into we don't know, but I, I could see there's some opening there for some kind of foreign support of whether it's pressures dissidents. I, I don't know, but I think there there could be a shift there. Um, and I'm not saying it's a big action or it's going to have a big impact, but I think there could be something. Thank you, Matthew. Hein- well, we're returning to Turkey and or Turkey going to looms large. <laughs> Uh, so there are presidential and parliamentary elections in Turkey in June of 2023. The most likely outcome is Erdogan wins after jailing or hobbling all potential rivals. <laughs> the international committee offers minimal criticism and domestic unrest is limited. B, same result, but domestic unrest is significant and Erdogan continues to rule. Or C, Erdogan loses the election or loses power through significant unrest in Turkey. So there's no option the international community intervenes and changes, like pressures him. Not in my three Not in your three. Just What about D, fake coup? That's what I was going to say. Or, yeah. or a real coup, which Turkey is known for doing yeah. well, many times in recent history. Well, I think those could be Under encapsulated D. in either C or... B, B, he continues yeah. to rule. Yeah, yeah I'm going to go with A. I, I'm, I'm going to vote for A. Erdogan, Erdogan brutally wields power and continues to hold power in Turkey. Fake elections, Vladimir Putin style. I mean, you know, listen, they're learning from one another. And, and Donald Trump's a big fan of both. So go figure. Yeah, if I'm if I'm Erdogan, why change a good thing? Yeah. Worked for me last time. Maybe B. Same result, but domestic unrest. I'll go with B just for variety. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think there's a non-zero chance that there's a shakeup in Turkey in the next five years. Probably not 2023. Um, Some, you know, again, they've had several coups um, in in the last century. Um, And so it's it's not, it's in the DNA. Um, There has to be some breaking point. Uh, this is a, a country that was not authoritarian five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, and so I don't know enough about the economic situation or other factors that might lead to that. Certainly in the near term, you, you would, I think the answer would be a um, that he locks the place down and puts everybody, anybody in jail who challenges authority like he has been doing. He also has, I think, the biggest house in the world or something. I mean, is that right? Yeah, the, the White House, the, like the Turkish uh, presidential palace is absurd. So he has even more reason to stick around. Google it sometime if you haven't. It looks spectacular. Oh, really? Uh, all the more reason to hang around. Yeah, but the up people tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with B. I think there's movement across the globe, whether it comes to the economy, whether it comes to just, you know, um, restlessness. And it seems like there are going to be some... Dis- I think it'll be cracked down on. I don't think there'll be a change in, in power, but I think there'll be more unrest than there would have been two years ago. I'm going with B. I'm of a similar point of view. I think Erdogan is still running Turkey at the end of 2023, but I think there are serious fissures uh, in his ability to project power. I think there is significant unrest, particularly if the economy continues to head in the direction it's headed right now. So what about the Dr. Oz is the new, is, is having lost Pennsylvania Senate goes to be the new president of Turkey, right? Or, or you know, I mean, I don't know, the Surgeon General of, of Turkey, whatever. I mean, he does still hold Turkish citizenship since he didn't give it up while running for U.S. Senate. All right. Okay, Jamil, with that, you are the next questioner. 
All right. So my next question is, will the Russia-Ukraine war, A, end with complete Ukraine victory, B, end with a complete Russian victory, C, end with a partial Ukrainian victory, taking back the east but not Crimea, end with a settlement that keeps Russian control of Crimea and parts of eastern Ukraine, or something else? Morgan. Next year or? In the next year. In the next year. In the next year, right? In the next year, will we see a complete Ukrainian victory, complete Russian victory, partial victory in the east, Settlement that keeps Russian parts of uh, parts of Crimea and Ukraine or some other thing. Morgan, to you first. Sure. So while I think the Russia-Ukraine war ideally would end with a complete Ukrainian victory, um, I'm a bit of a pessimist here. And I think that it will ultimately end with a settlement that keeps Russia in control of Crimea and parts of eastern Ukraine. Um, I think what we're hearing in the administration right now is rumblings of a diplomatic solution here. Um, and I, that does not bode well for Ukraine. Ultimately, um, if they were to um, agree to any sort of settlement that keeps Russia in control of any part of their t- territory, it's a blatant violation of their sovereignty and um, would, I think, unfortunately end up with uh, Ukraine losing its territory. Yeah. Martha? I think in addition, in addition to the Biden administration, obviously uh, some of our NATO allies or European allies have put pressure on Ukraine in the past. So I think Ukraine will be under pressure to give up something um, as much as I would like to see them have total victory. Matthew. Um, So a few interesting points. So this is within the next year. So in 2024, Vladimir Putin stands for, and I quote, (laughs) re-election. So I, I do think that in the next 12 months, he will be under some pressure to wind down the war. Um, special military operation. The special <laughs> military operation. So I, I think, I mean, to answer your question directly, I think within the next 12 months, we're likely to see D, which is to say, uh, not, I'm not sure a permanent settlement, but a sort of like quasi-settlement where Russia's in control of Crimea and parts of eastern Ukraine. Um, I think that's likely. I think it's actually quite hard militarily to take Crimea. Um, of course, all the bridges have been destroyed. It's about a mile and a half uh, uh, wide amount of water you have to cross. I mean, it's just a very difficult military maneuver. So I think that's that's unlikely to happen in the next year. But who knows? I mean, the Ukrainian army has been uh, has surprised uh, in the past. I will say I think that this is an interesting area where the views of the United States and Western Europe differ from those of our allies in Eastern Europe, who mm-hmm. I think are much more bullish on a on a uh, you might think of as a full vindication of. Ukrainian sovereignty back to the pre-2014 lines, mm-hmm. but um, but we shall see. I think in the, in the next year, I, I, I don't see it going past um, Ukraine reclaiming most of the territory, except for some in the east and, and not yet Crimea. Andy Kaiser. Uh, I'm afraid I, I see the same. Um, I think Crimea could end up being the, the flashpoint of the entire conflict, and frankly, could see the Ukrainians pushing harder than its allies are interested in pushing. Uh, you have a leading European nation on an international tour saying um, saying that the Ukrainians should accept Russian control of Crimea and parts of eastern Ukraine with Macron going on 60 Minutes, going around, around the world saying as such, uh, a leading nation of NATO and the European Union. So... Um, that leads me to think that's where it's likely to end up, that you have a, a German chancellor interested in turning the page, um, interested in heating his 
his country in the in a cold winter and kind of moving moving on and increased tension with China complicates all of those factors um, in a kind of on again off again frankly kind of bumbling strategy from the U.S. administration in my view sometimes we care sometimes we don't um, and that's where you're left uh, so I, I I think it'll very much be a standstill uh, but I, I do think at some point next year the following year. Crimea flashpoint will will be the one to watch. Jessica Jones. Changing the format, which is to run through the options. That's okay, Jamil. Always doing his own style. Um, so I'm <laughs> going to go with C, which is the partial Ukrainian victory in the East, but not Crimea, for all of the reasons laid out. And adding on, I guess, the only new one with the new Congress coming in and potentially less support coming from members of Congress, the House GOP. Um, you know, we're going to be at a year soon, and whether both the Congress and the American public wants to continue past year support um, with big, uh, large package uh, aid packages, and their appetite for that is going to be diminishing, which will put pressure on um, the administration to, you know, to push for a deal that doesn't get the Ukrainians probably everything they want. Um, but to Andy's point, that doesn't mean that permanently that's a solution. And so you could see flash, um, flashes in the future. Last, sort of not least, Matthew Hammond. Well, I'm certainly rooting for A, which is N with complete Ukrainian victory, but I'm ultimately going with something else because each of these options begins with the word end. I don't Ooh. think it ends in 2023. Um, I think it drags on into 2024. I could easily see the end result looking something like C and or D. Um, so a uh, partial Ukrainian victory with some settlement that gives Russia more than we all think they should have. And for my part, look, I mean, I, I tend to agree with everybody, but I think it's it's just a result of the weak sauce approach the Biden administration has taken and combined with the with the pathetic parts of the Republican Party who either love Vladimir Putin, think Russia should succeed, think we should get out. Um, and, our, and Ronald Reagan is spinning his grave when it comes to uh, the way the Republican Party or certain parts of the Republican Party are behaving. So I'm ashamed to say it. Uh, I want to see A as well, but I do think we'll end up with somewhere around C or D, at least for this year. So. Over Martha Miller, you're up next. All right. What will be the first headline regarding Turkey in 2023? A. Turkey agrees to Sweden, Sweden and Finland joining NATO. B. Turkey and Greece solve a longstanding territorial dispute. <laughs> C. Erdogan brokers a peace deal between Russia and Ukraine. Or D. The U.S. approves the sale of new F-16 fighter jets to Turkey. Thoughts? Okay, so I'll start with A, but then D. I'm an A as well. Right. I, these are some of these are very. So I think Turkey agrees to Sweden and Finland join NATO, but they have to get the F-16. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think yeah. that's right. There's no right or wrong answer though. But, but, here's the, <laughs> but here's the question: Will they shoot down the F-16s they get from us with their Russian S-300s? Uh, 400s. Yeah. S-400. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Even worse. <laughs> E, do they steamroll into Syria? With those F-16s? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one for any of the other? Yeah, I'm, I'm going with A, and I agree. I think it's uh, maybe A and D are worked out at about mm -hmm. the same time, but A has to be announced first. Okay. I'm not sure what I thought that before, but I've been convinced by the wisdom of the crowd. <laughs> wow, all right. Okay, our final question, which is written in different ways, so I'll please listen. Uh, what keeps President Joe Biden up at night? A, 
old age. B, Russian nuclear escalation. C, the GOP-controlled House, a.k.a. the Republican Fab Five. Or D, a rematch with Donald Trump, or if polls are to believe, up-and-coming challenger Ron DeSantis. Ah, not yet. E, his bladder. No, you have have to choose an option. There's no outs on this one. A, old age. Bladder. (laughs) B, Russian nuclear escalation. Wow. Ah, Matthew. I, I would just I, say, because I think, yeah, I think I, that, I is, that is okay. such a uniquely bad outcome and one that is at least plausible, um, that it's something that he's concerned about. I, I actually think Matthew's right that he's concerned about it and it's the thing that keeps him up at night, but I think wrongly and stupidly, right? There's no chance <laughs> the Russians are escalating nuclear weapons. It's ridiculous. And 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 they're, it's actually what's holding the administration back. This 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 wimpiness about like, oh the Russians might escalate to nuclear, so we can't do anything, and we have to slowly eke up the the involvement. I mean, this is a classic lawyer problem. The parade of horribles. Joe Biden suffers from it in droves, just like his predecessor before him and and, and Barack Obama. I mean, it is it's not going to happen. And 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 we should just we should just make clear to the Russians if they did it would. We turn Moscow into glass. I just want to say that I think U.S. support for Ukraine is the most successful foreign policy venture of the United States since the Afghan war. Wrong. The, the, the Russia's invasion of Afghanistan. I, I just think that what what has happened in terms of the decimation of the Russian army with the support of the United States, with no loss of life, with really with no except the ten thousand civilians in Ukraine. There's a no war loss of going life. on, Jamil. There's a war going on. I mean, like that's what happens, and the fact that the Ukrainians have been able to their bravery with our support the beat back the Russians is a great testament to bipartisan and in fact nonpartisan U.S. support. So I understand that Jamil has uh, his, his certain views, but I, I don't think we should miss the force for the trees here, which is just a very successful foreign policy operation. I, I actually think it's exactly the opposite, Matthew. I think the Chinese the watch. Yeah, I think the Chinese. I think the Chinese. I think the Chinese have watched watch what we've done in Ukraine and realized we don't have to stomach for a real fight. That all we're going to do is slowly eke it as little as possible and wait as long as possible and slowly go in. And that they're going to, they're going to, the lesson they've taken away is the thing to do is not do what the Russians did. Be prepared, be successful, go in and crush all opposition, and they will take Taiwan before we even have a chance to move on it because they've learned the lesson. The U.S. doesn't stand by its allies, doesn't, doesn't really threaten its enemies. And here we've barely succeeded. We've lost 10,000 lives, millions of dollars in power plants, and we call that a win? Embarrassing. I, I don't think that's the lesson. Matthew, I, 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 I agree with uh, just coming back to the question. I agree with, <laughs> with, with the um, the thing that keeps Joe Biden up at night is uh, an irrational fear of Russian nuclear escalation. Because if that's not what's keeping him up at night, there's an absolutely no explanation for the anemic response and support for the Ukraine. Yes. I, all right. Mm-hmm. I got to fight here. It's <laughs> not that anemic. I don't know that I'm going to side with Ferrar on this, but I will say the new right also raises the specter often that yes. our U.S. engagement in Ukraine, if you, you know, if you extrapolate that out to how that ends, is could be in the nuclear realm, and therefore we shouldn't have anything to do with yeah. that. I mean, this so, is a new right to start an insurrection of the Capitol, okay, <laughs> and believe the election was stolen, it's, and, 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 and the most popular show on all of television. Well, but in pretty much every country, the far right and the far left meet, they, they have the same views, so, mm-hmm. right? It's like a horseshoe. And I think most Americans are somewhere in the center 
where they believe that Ukraine has rights to sovereignty and that Putin is a despicable character. Um, so anyway, but I, but it, you're right no, it's and true. it's frightening. And, and I think CPAC in terms of misses, uh, when CPAC tweeted out, uh, what did they tweet? Is something about Putin after Putin announced the annexation of, uh, of these uh, territories in Ukraine, uh, CPAC, like basically lauded it. Yeah. So did um, so did Donald Trump for the first three, two days of the invasion said it was the right thing for Russia to do. Yeah. So you know there are problems on on both sides. For sure. Um, all right. Back to the just question. Just about yeah. So that there's two options left that are a little more political, which is C GOP controlled House. Anyone? Okay. No one's worried about the fact. Actually, good form. Biden's delighted okay. by it too. I just yeah. Yeah. so yeah. he's so happy. Or D rematch with either Donald Trump or you know the up and comers. Okay. Um, so. I've, I've got, all right, so A and D when it comes to the up-and-comers, right? I think President Biden does not want to serve one term because Donald Trump served yeah. one term and was ousted, <laughs> right? Second, um, well, he's coming back, Morgan. He's coming back. He's, it was all, it was illegal. It's like the cartoon, okay. the, the whatever it's called. Oh, yeah, the cards are out. Yeah. Yeah. The, cards the Republicans are, are going quickly. Mm -hmm. are you can buy them with crypto, by the way. Republicans are ready for him this time around, and they've got a lot of really compelling candidates that will give him a run for his money. Um, the, the primary is going to be a bruiser, but I think you've got better qualified, competitive candidates um, on the Republican side this time around in a very long time, and I think he's going to have a tough 2024. I think publicly he's worried about Donald Trump because I think the Democratic Party feels like and probably does fare better when Donald Trump's name is out there as a, as this frightening specter. Um, but in reality, it's likely Ron DeSantis who easily could beat Biden. Um, and I'd like to add one other note, which is I think Elon Musk has stolen Trump's thunder. Mm. Um, mm. I think he is the person who is fighting for the little guy against the elite. Right. And so I think he is now the champion of the little guy from, from the little guy's perspective. And he's doing what Trump did, which was fight the elite. And and I think Trump doesn't have the magic anymore when someone else is doing that. And Elon's richer. And yeah. yeah. And he can't run for president. And he can't get you off to Twitter. He's, 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 he's foreign born. So I think there's another factor, too, that Biden should be worried about, and that is. And, and with all respect, he's going to be two years older than he is today. The man has shown his age. He's aged dramatically. And they kept him under wraps during the campaign in 2020. And they didn't let him do press. And they didn't let him do much of anything in public for reasons. And we've seen that consistently throughout this presidency. And so I think Father Time is working against him in a really brutal way that it does to people in their mid-80s. And the presidency. Yeah. Things I didn't think were going to happen in this podcast. The terms Father Time come out. <laughs> so with that, Father Time, uh, that's a wrap. Thank you to all of our NSI experts here today for this lively discussion. And thanks to Bert Agacon and the entire NSI team for making our holiday podcast episode possible. Um, much like our listeners, Fault Lines will be taking a holiday, a winter holiday break. Be sure to join us again in the new year. For all of us here at NSI, um, have a great holiday season. <laughs>